0: We're going to dive into Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23 today. The rescue, redemption, and reconciliation found in Christ. If you remember last week, we learned that the wisdom and knowledge um, that we need is found in one place. It's found in Christ. It allows us not only to know God, but to know His will, but also to please Him and to do His will. Paul summarized what that meant for us in four participles. He said that we are to be bearing fruit in every good work, we're to be increasing in the knowledge of God, we're to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And then we are to be joyously giving thanks to God for at least two things he said. One was the inheritance we now share with the saints. But then also also that he had rescued us from from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. Now what's interesting is we ended our study last week at verse 14, but that really wasn't the end of the passage. The passage runs all the way down through verse 23. But it was too much to tackle in one week, so I broke it into two sections. So really what we talk about today all falls under Paul's comment about joyously giving thanks for the fact that we now share in the inheritance of the saints and that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus. And so everything we're going to talk about today falls under that. We're going to look at that and there are three words that Paul uses for us in this passage today. One is That he rescued us, that's verse 13. The second is that he redeemed us, that's verses 14 through 18. And the third is that he reconciled us, and that's verses 19 through 23. And all three of these things he says that God did in Christ. And remember as we go through this, everything about this letter is screaming about the sufficiency of Christ. Everything that we're going to study is about what we have and what's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And the reason why Paul is doing that is because much like the Galatians, the Colossians were kind of moving away from that. They had come to faith in Christ, but now somehow they had been convinced that they needed more. It wasn't enough to be in Christ. They needed other things to be rescued. They needed other things to be ultimately redeemed. They needed other things to be reconciled to God. And it was everything from mystical practices to abusing their bodies to some type of weird mystic philosophy and empty deception and man-made rules and religions, forms of legalism from the Old Testament. They were adding all of those things to their faith in Christ, hoping that it would accomplish more Or believing that it would accomplish more than what Jesus had accomplished. And Paul's pushback on that is, no, everything you need is in Christ. Christ is sufficient for all these things. You don't need more than Him. And so each week we kind of focus on that. And today we're going to focus on the fact that God has rescued, redeemed, and reconciled us in Christ. And so let's go ahead and look at verses 12 through 13. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So our first point here is that God rescued us in Christ. Now, one of the major themes throughout both the Old and New Testaments is the idea that God is one who rescues or delivers his people. We've got a whole entire... Event, the Exodus, that's based on that. We've got books like Judges and Esther that focus on the rescuing of God. We see that repeatedly in the book of Judges where God has to constantly rescue and deliver his people. The whole entire book of Esther is really a story about God rescuing Israel. It's a thread that runs through much of Israel's history. We constantly see that with references to God's deliverance repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. In fact, I did a very quick survey. Do you realize that over half of the Old Testament books have a theme or a thread of rescue or deliverance that runs through it? Half of the Old Testament books focus on that theme. In the Bible we see God deliver from danger, sickness, death, enemies, hostility, disease, sin, and even his wrath. God is a God who rescues and delivers. Here we see another example of God's deliverance. Look at what he says here. It says... For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. According to the Bible, there's two primary, you can call them domains, but really what they are is spheres of influence, power, rule, and authority. So really there's two domains that exist. One of them, as we see here, Paul refers to as the domain of darkness. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul refers to this domain actually as the domain of Satan. And it's because he governs it, it's filled with the enemies of God, and it refers to both spiritual, spiritual things and earthly things. So there's this domain of darkness that's governed by the wicked forces of evil, by Satan himself. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is the domain of darkness. It's a sphere of influence. It's not so much a place as it is a sphere that's governed by Satan. His forces, his influence... Now, most of the world is under the influence and control of this domain. To allow me to paraphrase Jesus, people love the darkness rather than the light. People like being in that domain. They prefer that domain. Kimberly used to ask me as we were going up, why do we sin? And I would always answer her, because we want to, because we like to. It's what we're bent on. Satisfies the flesh. Now, what's interesting is Dustin asked me last night about... Paul's use of two different words here, one of them is that word domain, he uses the word kingdom a little bit later, and in many respects they're synonyms, but there's a slight difference to them, the the word that Paul uses here, exousia, refers to power or authority primarily, Um, it does refer to a domain or rulership, but generally the idea of exercising power or authority over somebody. And so that's the word that is used here. The word that's going to be used in a few minutes is more related to kingdom rule by a king, but has the same idea. So there's synonyms all having to do with power and authority, exercising control, that kind of thing. But um, again, some slight nuances. This word, exousia, is not generally used, I don't believe at all, when it comes to Christ. I could be wrong on that, but usually it's the kingdom. That's referred to Christ. And so the sphere that Paul is talking about is, is in many respects you could call it a kingdom, if you will. You could call it a domain. Some of your Bibles might translate there, uh, instead of saying from the domain of darkness, might translate it as from the power of darkness or from the authority of darkness. And that is generally the idea. Those who are in that domain are under the control and authority and power of the enemy. That's the reality. Now, the other domain is what Paul says here, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. I'm going to label this as the domain of light, because I like the darkness and light. Now, and the reason I do that is because if you jump back up into verse 12, what does it say? We were qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul introduces this light-dark concept here. There's various names for this domain of light, if you will, in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to it as the kingdom of God. Sometimes it refers to it as the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes it even refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. We see this reference in verse 12 again, where he says that we have been transferred into the inheritance, of the, or we've shared the inheritance of the saints in light. This domain is the domain of Jesus. He refers to it here as the kingdom of his beloved Son. We know that's a reference to Jesus, which means it's governed by him, it's controlled by him. In fact, it's even a little more beyond that because Jesus himself is this kingdom. He is the light. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. Whoops. John chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 9 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and what? The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Who is that light? That is Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend Him. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, meaning John, but he came to bear testimony about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So this domain that Paul is talking about is Jesus Christ himself. He is the light. This is the domain of light or the kingdom of Jesus. Look at John chapter 3 verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So we see this theme of darkness and light throughout the scriptures. And it likens them to two different domains or spheres of influence. One controlled by Satan and his wicked forces. One not just being controlled by Jesus Christ, but being Jesus Christ himself, which adds whole new, pardon the pun, light on this idea of us being in the light. Why? Because we are in Christ. He is this kingdom of light, if you will. John chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke and said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Now here's the thing. We were all once members of the domain of darkness. Every single living human being at some point or another was a member of the domain of darkness. But see, what we're told here by Paul is that God has rescued us from that. He's delivered us from it. Look back at verse 13 again. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says we were members of that domain of darkness. Because we were members of the domain of darkness, we walked the way the world walks, we behaved the way the world behaves. And he says that that was according to the power of Satan, because he says... According to the power of the, or the prince of the power of the air, we were controlled by, it says, the lust of our flesh, our fallen minds and bodies. We were slaves to sin, Paul said, because we were members of that domain. And because of that, it says that we were members, or I'm sorry, children of God's wrath. That tells us what we've been rescued from. Ultimately, the wrath of God. But God rescued us. And we're now told that we are children of the light. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 6, we'll start with. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Why? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Peter described it in this way. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness, what? Into His marvelous light. If that doesn't give you chills, you're asleep this morning. As members of this new kingdom, we went from being slaves of darkness, slaves of sin, we're now servants of God and Christ in the kingdom of His light. We're no longer to be controlled by the flesh. We're no longer to be controlled by the power of Satan. We're no longer under his influence, his control. But rather we are now to be led by the Holy Spirit. Because we are children of the light. I thought of a rather silly illustration this morning. i going to tell it anyway. Two examples that all relate to being transferred, if you will. Transferred from one domain to another. I'm going to use the example of a hotel room. So, quite a few years ago, This was probably 25 years ago. We bought an agency down in Cincinnati area. So me and my co-part, who's now the IT director, Jay from up north, um, went down. And our job was to basically integrate this new agency into our systems, our network, and everything else. It's a lot of work. And so this was one of the first visits where we had to go down and look at everything and figure out what we had to do. And so the guy that owned our company at the time came into town and all of us had to go down to Cincinnati and he got all the hotel rooms and everything, you know, and got that all set up. And It was kind of an older hotel and um, as you can imagine, older hotels oftentimes have smaller rooms, right? So we all get in there and um, uh, I had a problem in my room of some kind. I don't remember what it was. I think air conditioning or heat or whatever it was wasn't working and so the front desk said, well, we're going to have to transfer you to a different room and so... I just remember when they did that, and they gave me the card at the time to uh, go up to that room, and I remember when I opened the door, and the prior room I was in was this fairly small, tight space, nice room, but it's small. I remember when I opened this door, it was like the heavens opened up, and angels started to sing, and there were harps playing in the background, because it was the presidential suite. I mean, this thing was massive. I walked in and it was almost took my breath away because all of a sudden the light burst in because the whole back wall was all windows overlooking the skyline of Cincinnati. And this was all the way up in the top floor of this hotel. And so the light just kind of shines in right and I walk in and there's this massive table that would seat 12 people. Like a dining room table in the middle with this recessed ceiling. I think they call it a recessed ceiling. With a huge chandelier with crystals and lights on it and everything, you know. And that was all on. And it just literally lit up the room. And then off in the back corner, there was a kitchen. Not a kitchenette, but a kitchen. It was bigger than the kitchen of my first home. Then off to the other side was the living room. Again... A living room with a full-size couch, wraparound couch, you know, that you could fit at least 12 to maybe 15 people on. And at the time, the TVs were all these CRT TVs, you know. And we had a projection TV at a place that I would lived, which was kind of like a or like a wall, and then it had a big thing that sat in the center. It was a big projection booth. Well, this had one of those with this massive TV projection thing on the wall. I think it took me a week to walk through the place to examine it you know but then I noticed I'm like there's no bed in here but I noticed there's a, a door off to the side so I walk over and I open the door and it was a full size bedroom with two huge king sized beds with two full walk in closets and I'm thinking this is heaven <laughs> you know this is glorious so enjoying that you know when I went to bed that night I literally went into the bedroom and I had I got up partway through the night and closed the door because there was something about this bedroom with the two French style doors that kind of opened up that just made me uncomfortable I felt like I was sleeping in the living room at my house you know how it is you got to have a little more confined space so I got up and I literally closed the bedroom door because it was just weird to try to sleep in this bed the bedroom was big enough but having those extra open up in there was just freaky so I had to shut it right well the next morning we get up and uh, we go down to breakfast <laughs> and Jay who's my counterpart is complaining about his room he's like gosh that room is small I'm like uh oh he's like I literally could walk in and I could put my hands on both walls you know and so then Di Richards who was with him starts complaining too she's like yeah it's a little crowded you know and I'm just kind of keeping my mouth shut and not saying anything and finally Jay looks at me and goes what's your room like? You're not talking very much. And I'm just like, it's, it's, okay. it's fine. It's, it's, all, it's all right. And they knew. They just knew I was being And they're like, you got a, like a suite or something? I went, something. They asked to come up and see the room after breakfast. And I was like, you, no, I can't. They came up to the room and they opened that door and Jay literally started walking real fast through the whole thing. He's like, oh my gosh! He's, going on, he's like, does, does Jim, Jim was the owner. Does Jim know you got this? Oh, he's going to blow gas. I said, look, they upgraded me, guys. I don't know. Well, then they asked if I'd be willing to switch. Uh-uh. uh-uh I've been transferred. I have been... Re- so anyway... That's the first part. Now that is radically different than when I was in St. Louis a few months back where I had a rather nice suite that I was staying in and the air conditioning went out. And this time they transferred me into a whole entirely different domain. I went from that. I should have known because as I'm starting to walk, I have to continue walking and walking through these narrower hallways into this older part of the building. So that was the first clue. second clue was when I came around the corner and saw a fully naked man standing in the middle of the hallway. third clue was when I opened the door and it hit the bed. <laughs> then as I walked from there towards the back to find the bathroom, the refrigerator was sitting in the middle of the walkway because there wasn't enough room to put in the cubby. And then when I opened the door and hit the toilet with the door... And then said, well, where's the vanity? And realized there was just a sink on a pedestal and this little tiny shelf to put my shaving kit on. I had been transferred (laughs) into the domain of darkness. The opposite of what happened when I was in Cincinnati. Now, I know that's a goofy story. But when we think about what God has done, what God has rescued us from, He took us from the domain of darkness and He put us in that suite of El Presidente. He put us in a whole different realm, in the kingdom of His Son. We have been rescued from that second hotel in St. Louis to something so much better. God is a God who rescues us. We were in danger. We were not only a part of that domain, but we were in danger of facing his wrath, and so he has rescued. He has delivered us from that, and he has transferred us into, not just the kingdom of Jesus, but as we've learned, he is the kingdom of light, and we've been transferred into him. Isn't that an amazing thing? He is a God who rescues and delivers us. That is his nature. Paul goes on God not only rescued us in Christ, but he also redeemed us in Christ. Look at verses 14 through 18. He says in whom in whom goes back to the end of verse 13 his beloved son in whom in his beloved son we have redemption the forgiveness of sins he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is the or he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is also of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. But look at that very first phrase in whom we have redemption. To redeem something means to set it free, it means to release it. Generally, it requires a payment or a ransom of some kind. It's all embedded in that word, the idea of. Purchasing or buying something back by paying off the debt that that person owes. What Paul tells us here is that God has redeemed us. He set us free. And he highlights two things. The nature and the means through which he did that. The first is the nature of our redemption. That's found in that verse 14. The forgiveness of sins. The nature of our redemption is that our sins have been forgiven We've been redeemed or set free from the debt that our sin created. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Jump down, we'll cover this in a few weeks in more detail, but jump down to verses 13 and 14. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, in that old body of sin, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, all of our sin having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, Paul mentions this certificate of death. A certificate of death was a legal document. It was usually handwritten by the debtor as proof of what he owed. So whether it was taking out a loan, he would handwrite his own promissory note and say, I have now been given, loaned, this particular amount of money, and I must now pay it back. Or if it was a tract of land, he would handwrite that he had been loaned the tract of land and was now indebted to the owner, and he would give that handwritten certificate of debt to whoever actually owned, whether it was the money or the land or whatever it is that he was borrowing. Paul likens our sin to that. In essence... Our sin created a certificate of death, an IOU, if you will, to the Lord. We have sinned against him. We are now in debt to him because of our sin. And as a result, there's a penalty if we don't pay that back. And that's the way these certificates of death worked. If you couldn't pay it back, you went to debtor's prison. However, we couldn't pay this one back. So Paul says, verse 14, he canceled out. The certificate of death: tore it up, tossed it in the fire, got rid of it. Why? Because it was hostile towards us. I don't know if any of you have been in debt before. I'm not talking about having a mortgage for your home, but literally where you've ever maybe found yourself at a spot where you were so crushed under debt that you just couldn't get out from underneath it. debt is hostile makes life difficult. It's crushing. It's impossible to get out from under. I know people who have been in that boat. I've never been in it myself to a high degree. I do remember a time after college where I spent way more than I could and I racked up a bit of credit card debt and was having some difficulty paying it off. But not like what Paul describes here. Debt that was hostile to us. And so what did God do? It says that he canceled out that debt by taking it out of the way. Because he nailed it to the cross, which means Jesus Christ paid that debt off for us. And the result is that it's been canceled. We no longer have that certificate of debt hanging over us, hostile to us, crushing us. That's the nature of the redemption. The means is the next thing Paul deals with. It says, In whom? Verse 14 back in Colossians. In whom? Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says that we have been justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. I want you to turn there. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Jump down to verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What's that redemption? The redemption is that God paid off the debt. He paid the ransom for us so that we wouldn't have to. According to 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse three, Jesus became redemption. It says He became redemption for us. Ephesians one seven, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The reason our redemption is found in Jesus Christ is because he paid the debt. Might I say rather God paid the debt in Christ. As Paul alluded to, redemption is possible in Christ because of the shedding of his blood. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, jump down to verse 28. It says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and look at what it says, and he gave his life a ransom. Remember that word, redemption, means to literally take something back, to purchase something back, either by paying for it or by offering a ransom or to pay off a ransom. That's what Christ did. He became that ransom for us. First Timothy chapter 2. Jump there with me. We see the same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, there is one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom, a payment for all the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus became our ransom. That's how we were able to be redeemed. That is the means to our redemption. The blood of Christ shed on a cross. His death instead of ours. Now, that's not something any mere mortal could have done. There was, a—I think it was Heretic Hagan. Is that his name? Um, Televangelist. Um, I watched him do a sermon one time where he actually made the blasphemous statement that any one of us could have died on the cross to forgive sins. That could have been me on the cross, he said. Someday he'll give account of that. Someday he'll probably realize that, gee, no, <laughs> that could not have been me hanging there to redeem anybody, even myself. No mere mortal could have done it. And Paul makes that really clear in this passage. Now, one of the things I've been struggling with with the book of Colossians here is you could almost in many cases take a single verse at a time because there is so much theology in it that it almost demands you spend a Sunday talking just about that one concept and the book is filled with that but I'm trying to make it through the book before I turn 70 and um, want to focus on the bigger picture what's that? (laughs) a year (laughs) Um, I want to focus on the bigger picture why Paul wrote it and and what he's trying to help the Colossians understand but look at what he does in this small theological section if you will verse 15 verse 15 The reason that Christ was able to pay the ransom, the reason Christ is able to redeem us, first and foremost, is because he is God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is the image Jesus Christ himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus Christ is God. The exact representation of of his being. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, it says in Hebrews. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claimed to be God, and he he said, I and the Father are one, and we know that that is a claim to deity, regardless of what the liberals say. Oh, he wasn't claiming to be God there, then I would ask the question, well then why is it the Jews, right after that said, we're going to stone you because you've made yourself out to be God? The liberals apparently don't read past the first part of that verse. But he is the image of the invisible God. He is the God-man, and because he's the God-man, he was able to be the ransom for our sins. It took both God and man to be able to do that. Another reason why he's able to redeem us, it says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we've got to be a little careful with that, because that's not meaning that Jesus was created. The idea here of the firstborn of creation in the ancient Near Eastern world that idea of firstborn really we'd like to think it meant literally the firstborn child but it didn't always mean the firstborn child it was a phrase that was used to refer to the most prominent child the one who received the bulk of the inheritance and sometimes that wasn't the first son most often it was but the idea was that the firstborn received twice the inheritance he was the one who was supposed to care for the parents as they aged. He was the most prominent and what, what Paul is alluding to here is Jesus was that firstborn of all of creation. He is preeminent to all of creation. He's fully God and fully human. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the highest rank and authority partly because he was God, partly because he was the God-man. Another reason Paul says why Jesus was able to redeem us Look at verse 16. Because all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Because of that, only he can redeem creation. And we sometimes miss that thought that we're not the only thing that God redeems. He will ultimately redeem creation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. All of creation, it says, cries out, waiting for our redemption, partly because it will receive its redemption, metaphorically speaking, because of Christ. He will restore, not just us, but all things, because He is preeminent over everything. Everything was not only created by Him, through Him, but even for Him. Another thing Paul says... Verse 17, another reason Jesus could redeem us is that he's before all things. And in fact, all things in him hold together. As silly as it sounds, I've heard people say, well, explain gravity! You know? (laughs) Crazy answer would be, Jesus! (laughs) He holds all things together. Quite simply, he holds all things together. And I believe that that is the way we to understand this. Everything exists in him, holds together in him. You want to wonder why... Electrons and protons and... Yeah, there's scientific things we can talk about, but the reality of it is that all things exist and hold together in Him. Period. And because of that, only He could redeem. Only He has the power and the authority to take our wicked, sinful, fleshly bodies and turn them into a glorified heavenly body. Why? He's before all things. All things exist in Him. John chapter 1 says again, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he tells us here that in him, as God, all things are held together. All of these things are because he's the firstborn of creation, supreme over all of it, and because of that he can redeem us. gives another reason here. Not only was Jesus the firstborn of creation, it says he's also the firstborn of the dead. Jump down into verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus is not only the head of creation, but he's the head of the church, a new spiritual and human entity, if you will, made up of redeemed individuals. He's the head. Why? Because he was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to rise from the dead. And again, talking there about preeminence, It's because of him that anyone, Old or New Testament saints, can rise from the dead. It's all secured in him. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's a reference to his resurrection. Jesus was not only the first to be resurrected from the dead, but the first in rank, authority, and superiority. That's really what that's referring to. Not just the first person. But the highest in rank, authority, and superiority. And as such, he becomes the head of the church. It's because he was resurrected that anybody can be resurrected. So God has redeemed us in Christ. What an amazing thing. The last part of our passage this morning, God has reconciled us in Christ. Look at verses 19 through 23. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all things to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His flesh, body through death, or I'm sorry, in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have been made a minister. The last thing we see there is that God has not just rescued us, God has not just redeemed us, but God has also reconciled us in Christ. Notice it says that this was something that pleased God. Verse 19, it says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. This pleased God. That to me is crazy. How many of us, when we have been offended, when we have been wounded by somebody, when it comes time to reconcile think in our mind, oh, just please me to reconcile. Oftentimes, our natural reaction is we want them to ask for forgiveness. We want them to come to us before we're willing to reconcile. They should make amends. But this says, no, it was pleasing to God to be the one that initiated it. He found pleasure in fixing the broken relationship between those who had sinned against him, those who rebelled against him. It pleased him. To take Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwelt and to use him to reconcile, fix the broken relationship between us and him. He was pleased by it. It's remarkable to me. It says that he did this having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, Jesus Christ became the means to reconcile all things to God. Remember, he didn't just redeem us but he redeems creation. He also reconciles which means he fixes that relationship between God and his creation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, we were in that domain of darkness. It says you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been reconciled. Romans chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, for if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life the blood of Christ is what reconciles us God used that to fix the broken relationship between us and him and you notice why he did this look down at verse 22 Well, we'll start at verse 21 he says although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds that's who we were we were part of that domain weren't we Even though that was true, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death for a purpose. You want to talk about the purpose-driven life? This is the purpose in order for him to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He took this broken, corrupt, sinful human being and has somehow, through the blood of Christ, turned it into something that is holy and blameless, that he can now present to himself. What an amazing thing. So that's why he did it. So that he might have something holy, perfect, and righteous to place before himself, that we might be blameless. So, we see that God rescues, redeems, and reconciles. What's our takeaway from all this? I really kind of wrapped this all up into one what I'll call big takeaway. And I think it comes from verse 23. We can't overlook that. Look at what he says in verse 23. Notice it starts with that word, if. If. So God rescues. God redeems. God reconciles. If, indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and at which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, I am a believer in eternal security. I believe that once we have been rescued, redeemed, reconciled, once we have been justified, once we have been forgiven, that we don't have to do anything to keep that. However, there's this tension in the scriptures that warns us to remain steadfast. And I believe the reason for that is it's much like the parable of the sower. You know, if you look at that parable, you have the... Farmer scattering the seed. And the first three appear or look like they've accepted all of that. But in all three instances, they don't have roots. They look like maybe they got some roots and they walk away. Life gets tough and they abandon it. What we have here in this particular book is Paul is looking at these Colossians and they were at, they were being threatened, if you will. They were being tempted to walk away from their faith in Christ. And what I mean by that was, not that they would abandon Christ altogether, but they somehow were thinking he's not sufficient. They somehow thought they needed to add all these other things. And what that means is that they would begin to place their hope in something else. And Paul was trying to get them to understand, your hope needs to be in Christ, not these other things. You can't take and say, I have hope in Jesus, I have faith in Jesus, but... I need this. Because that means you don't really have hope in Jesus. It means your faith really isn't in Jesus. That's why Paul warns us elsewhere. It's not by your works of righteousness. It's by grace, which means it has to be free. It has to be by God's work, not your work. And so Paul is looking at a real thread here. There may have been some of these Colossians who are like those people in the parable of the sower, who seem to eagerly take the gospel, but as others got in their head... Their faith really wasn't in that gospel, but was in other things. And so Paul warns them not to step back from that. Our faith should be tied to Jesus Christ. There's no rescue apart from Him. There's no redemption apart from Him. There's no reconciliation apart from Him. In fact, I would argue that there's no rescue, redemption, or reconciliation if you try to do that with faith in Jesus plus other things, because that's not faith in Christ. I was raised in a church where... They preached Christ. They talked about Christ. But they also said, the only way for me to receive the grace of God was by doing the sacraments. Which means, I had to take the communion. That's how I got that grace from God. Which means, it's not really grace. Go to confession. Why? So that the priest can absolve my sins. Because the priest stands between me and Christ, and then Christ between him and God. Well, that's not faith. Which is why, I grew up for the first 18 years of my life, not knowing what faith really was. I was Catholic. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I thought He was the Son of God, but the way that I would acquire that grace was by doing those things. And so I needed to go to church. I needed to take communion. I needed to go to confession. Some needed to become priests because that's how they got that grace. But Paul says, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. And we find out through this letter that what he meant by that was firmly established and steadfast in faith in Christ alone. That's where their hope had to be. And so a giant takeaway is just that. Our faith and our hope has to be in Christ alone. Because it's through that faith in Him that we are rescued, redeemed, and reconciled. There is no other option. I think we face the same danger today. There are voices out there that tell us we need more. That faith in Jesus alone isn't enough to please God or draw near to him. Sure, it's enough to get saved, but then we have to do these other things. Our churches in many places are filled with forms of legalism. Yeah, we come to know Jesus in faith, but then he expects us to do these other things. But that's not faith. And Paul says, remain steadfast. There's all kinds of false teaching that tries to draw us away from the simplicity of faith in Christ. That is one of the hardest things for us to accept. Because we just somehow think We need to do more. Instead of resting in our position in Christ, knowing that when we are in Him, everything has been provided for us to be rescued, redeemed, and reconciled. Amen?